I'm going to tell you something. My life is changing and it's not great. Somewhere I live. freedom of speech. Well, the next one. It still looks like a war zone here. It looks like ground zero. Well, the next round hit my husband, hit my soldier. Does he have a crush on me? No. I just believe I'll die for my cause. Hearing is seeing. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary. I feel like I'm the minority in a town that I grew up and raised my children in. Immigrants are changing America's culture. That loss of power, numbers, whatever, that frightens a lot of people. And they're changing the economy. It's okay if we're invisible. It's okay if we break our backs and twist our hands cutting a freaking chicken. But for us to stand in front of your town hall demanding a better life and a better future, that's too much. You brown people stepped out of your place. Yeah, we want a new place. I'm Stephen Smith. In the coming hour, Pueblo, USA, from American Radio Works. First, this news. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Pueblo, USA. I'm Stephen Smith. Americans are beginning to realize that the nation's largest wave of immigration didn't happen a century ago. It's happening now. About 35 million of us were born in other countries. That's one in eight residents of the United States. Now, immigrants come from all over the globe, but Latino immigration is remaking the country. And it's not just in big cities or in the Southwest. This neighborhood is a lot of old families. These people have been here since... I guess the town has been here. This is one of the oldest families in town right here. I used to cut that lady's grass when I was 10 years old. They've been there forever. That's Eddie Ambrose Green. He's taking us on a drive through his hometown, Siler City, North Carolina. It's in the state's rolling Piedmont region. Siler City is a place where you sit out on the front porch, where there are a lot of churches, where the downtown is a few blocks long, and a place with closed-up factory buildings. Any tour of Siler City is bound to wind up in front of a huge, brick, boxy building with no windows, the Townsend Chicken Processing Plant. Townsend employs about 1,300 workers who process about a million chickens a week. In Siler City, we had two options. You either worked at the plant or you drove a truck. I knew I wasn't geared to work in a plant, so I started driving truck and hauling chickens from Siler City all over the country. Siler City, North Carolina, used to be the kind of town where almost everyone, black and white, had roots going back a century or two. Characters on The Andy Griffith Show mentioned Siler City, and the actor who played Aunt B retired in Siler City because it reminded her of Mayberry. In other words, it was just about the last place a Spanish-speaking immigrant seemed likely to land. That started to change in the 1990s. Today, thanks to the chicken jobs that no one else wants, Siler City is about half Latino. And it's not an isolated case. North Carolina and other southeastern states have some of the nation's fastest-growing Latino populations. Many longtime residents of Siler City say they're not so troubled that many of those Latino workers are undocumented. What makes them uneasy, some of them, is the way the new population is transforming the racial and cultural flavor of their community. John Bewin and Tennessee Watson of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University produced this portrait of a changing town in the Nuevo South. Solid City, unfortunately, has always been a racially divided town. Like out there where I live, and that from the airport, from the, when you turn on airport road, that's like all black station. So when you go past down to the country, it's like all white. So all through here now, but all these houses now are all Mexicans. This is the beginnings of downtown as you come from west to east. They're old brick buildings. Look at the workforce. This is a good time. They're changing shifts. On Friday afternoon, it's it's almost the end of the day. You're seeing the Hispanic population getting off work at one of the major poultry processing plants in town. I don't mean to say this in 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 a racist kind of way, but if you ever seen a house overrun with roaches and you can't stop them, and it's like you look and there's two, when you look again, there's four, when you look back, there's seven. If you sit here, you'll notice you don't see a black person or a white person come out of this plant at all. I pretty much like here, cause it's, I don't know, it's a different experience since 
I used to live in the countryside in Guatemala. I'm Dera. Um, I'm in the 12th grade, and we live here since 2002. It wasn't like this before. I think it were four mobile homes, and then the lady that owns this land, she decided to bring more mobile homes. It's like only Hispanics living here, mostly from Mexico. I live with my parents, and I have three sisters and two brothers. My parents are Francisco and Florinda. I'm Deborah's mom. I worked for seven years in the chicken plant, one year with Pilgrim's Pride and six years with Gold Kiss. The packing area is where I work. You pack everything, what they call the breast, the tender, the leg. You throw it in the boxes, cover them up, and throw them on the line. My name is Francisco. Right now, I work for a builder where we make walls for houses. I have to drive 40 minutes from here to where I work. But thanks to God for bringing us here. And we're here working. You come from one country to another not knowing about the culture, what life has been like in a place. We didn't know. I didn't know anything. What we have seen is that there are people, like in all places, who are good, and there are people who look at others with disdain, as if they're saying, you aren't from here, get out of here. I don't pay attention to them because I know I came to this country to work and to watch over my family, to see to their future. I have a daughter who is about to graduate from high school. From what I see, she has always worked hard and gotten honors in her studies. And she likes soccer. Today is February 15th, and uh, today's the first day of the uh, team. We uh, spent the entire week going through tryouts, and so uh, this morning we finalized the list. My name is Paul Quadros, and I am the head coach of the Jordan Matthews High School Soccer Program in Siler City. And in addition to that, I'm a journalist, an author, and an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Maria and Deborah. I play defense stopper. You have to not let the forwards go in there make us a goal, so I try to do my best. She is a lioness in the defensive line. I mean, she is the tiniest person out here, but she brings the biggest game. Hey, you got it. it. (laughs) One, two, three. Let's go, Lady Jets! One, two, three, four, five. We're about um, a little over half uh, Latina girls. And the rest are white. We have one African American. So it's a very diverse team. <laughs> I'm Jenny Pleasance, and I'm here at Jordan Matthews, a little late for the soccer game. Um, we appear to be winning by four goals now. Um, I'm watching my child, Meredith Pleasant. She's number 18, and she's a right wing. But the funny thing is, when you go to the soccer games, none of their parents speak English. So they all sit on one side, and we all sit on the other. We don't, I don't understand a thing they're saying. You know, how do you say your kid's playing really good if half the time you can't pronounce the name, you know, um, and they don't understand anything you're saying? Go, Shannon! Oh! But, you know, the biggest change I'd have to see would be at my pediatrician's. I grew up being able to walk in, and they all knew who I was, and I saw the same doctor. And now when you go in, there's 20 Hispanic families and kids everywhere, and they have the lady up front speaks Spanish. I feel like I'm the minority, and that does bother me. In a town that I grew up and raised my children in, you know, it's like, do you have Medicaid? Do you have your papers? I'm like, I've been coming here for 18 years. That frustrates me to sit in a room with, you know, all these Hispanic families, and I know their children need health care too, 
But the change in the environment in the pediatrician office is not like it was when you could just go take, you know, walk up to the window and say, hey, um, so-and-so sick. It's just not what, what it was when we, why we went there to begin with. Well, I've always described uh, what a town like Siler City or now what the country's going through as sort of the uh, five stages of dealing with grief or dealing with immigration or cultural change. And, you know, initially there might be denial People saying, well, you know, it's not really going to change. It's not happening to our town. And when I got here, I heard a lot of depression from longtime residents. You know, a real sense of loss of uh, the community and the culture and everything that Siler City was. We do have a 30% chance of showers, drizzle. We're 67 now and cloudy here at WNCA. Hey, do you drive a cool vehicle with those big aftermarket rims? Well, Wayne's Alignment Services, Siler City. I am Barry Hayes. I am the bear of the air at WNCA Radio AM 1570. I'm also the president, general manager of the company, and the janitor, and I mow the yards. I'm from this area. I'm from central North Carolina. And, you know, I've been in Siler City about 25 years. I came here to manage this radio station and just fell in love with the town. It was a rural town, a blue-collar town, uh, maybe 70% white, 30% black. Typical makeup of a, a small North Carolina town. This is Ilana Dubester, and I'm the past executive director of a local Latino center called El Vinculo Hispano, or Hispanic Liaison in English. And uh, we provide all kinds of direct services and advocacy. The agency, I helped start the agency with a group of people in the county back in 1995. I moved to North Carolina from Chicago. We wanted to find a place in the country to do organic farming. But I remember coming here in 91 or early 92, and I came downtown and walked around these streets that we're walking right now, and um, it was a pretty, uh, how do I say this nicely? A depressing scene. <laughs> I don't know if there's a nicer way to say that. Um, there were a few businesses downtown, but most of the downtown area, which is these two streets on Chatham Avenue, uh, were boarded up. There was nothing. And certainly, you know, as you can see from downtown, although it's still working itself up, you know, most shops are now open. And you see a lot of Latino businesses as well. Siler City was an industrial town, but it was a dying industrial town. We were seeing uh, jobs falling by the waysides, and we were seeing the textile uh, industry downsizing. We were seeing our furniture industry downsizing. Our cotton mill was downsizing, and they continued to downsize for the next 20 years. So 91, there were already, we were ready to start to see a Latino immigration uh, and certainly I would notice people in supermarkets and stores and trying to read labels or trying to talk to people and, and remember going home scratching my head saying, how, what, why, what's going on here? Why are people here? How are they getting here? Well, as we were losing our, some of our mainstream industry, uh, the poultry industry was growing here in Siler City. And so they began attracting the uh, Hispanics into this region. Very active recruitment in Mexico in particular. And they would give bonuses for people bringing more people because they were really in shortage of, of workers. And they had, you know, chewed through the white population, chewed through the black population. Everybody, you know, over the years got their children to be better educated than themselves and, you know, moving on to other work. The best guess now is that uh, Siler City is 50% Latino, about 5,000 people. I think the uh, broader community here has welcomed uh, our newcomers with open arms. Uh, the only rub is we would just like for them to obey our laws and, and learn some of our cultures here and keep clean yards. Then in 96, the town created a Hispanic task force. Well, needless to say, there were no Hispanics on the task force. So they created two brochures. First, the Spanish was really poor. It was hard to understand. Some of it didn't make any sense, but it was about junk in your yard, domestic violence, drugs. No, like in this country, it's, it's not okay to beat your wife. 
It was a very offensive brochure and made a lot of assumptions about us and who we are and who we aren't and what we are about. And it was all about, you know, we're a bunch of criminals and we got to learn how to behave. Housing was a problem too. We had uh, folks who were moving into vacant houses and then they would be inviting their relatives to come and pretty soon we would have a house with 10, 15, who knows, maybe 20 people living in one house and they'd be parking their cars in the, all in the front yard and hanging their laundry out in the bushes and so forth. We had, a, had to deal with that a little bit and trying to educate them as to uh, our ways here in Siler City. So you got the depression and then you got this sort of sense of fear of they're taking over. And then, you know, you, you have anger. And that's what we saw in 1999-2000 in Siler City, a lot of anger that eventually bubbled forth and culminated in this anti-immigrant rally that I think the town still tries to live down, the, the David Duke rally. The truth and the reason why we're here today is because we have a deep and abiding love for our heritage, for this town that your fathers and mothers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and mothers, what they built with their sweat and their sacrifice and their vision. This was on top of town hall. They maybe had 50 or 60 people, a couple hundred people on the outside of the event, a lot of them police officers, some curious people, some Latinos, but not many people. Ladies and gentlemen, what are we supposed to do? Just be quiet? Just keep our mouths shut while our country and our community and our town and our schools and our heritage is taken away from us? Is that what we're supposed to do? I say no. I say never. This was brought in by an extremist group. This was not representative of the mindset here in Siler City at all. And uh, we kind of hung our heads, you know, when that happened and couldn't wait for it to go away. My sense, my opinion. Is if that rally had been organized by some upstanding citizen and not tied to KKK, to the Grand Wizard, there would have been a lot more people. But because it had a KKK in it with David Duke, I mean, who wants to be seen with the KKK? I mean, a few do, and we know who they are, got their pictures. But um, not many people are willing to do that nowadays. So uh, there's been some, maybe some good things that had come out of that Duke rally. Uh, but mostly it made people kind of think, you know, where they stood on this issue. You know, were they going to stand down there with David Duke and the Klan against the Latino population, or were they going to try and find some other kind of accommodation to be able to live uh, in that town? Okay. Somewhere on that pad there's a bunch of stuff in red. Anywhere South you want to start. Town, anywhere. Anywhere you want to go. Anywhere. All right. My name is Tim Rife, and uh, I'm the code enforcement officer for the town of Siler City. There's a set of guidelines in, in the town code, um, or laws, they're actually laws, deals somewhat with aesthetics and things like that of the town. And my, my job is to enforce, and uh, I try to use kids' gloves to do that. I don't try to, you know, scare anybody into anything or anything else. I ask them politely. And, Tim is doing a, a good job. The problem is he doesn't speak enough Spanish. My name is Marcia Espinola, and I'm the associate director for the Hispanic Liaison, El Vinculo Hispano. We were agreed that the community was needing some help. What's that house over Can you see the house over there, Marcia? Hi, how are you? Hola, Obviously, he wasn't English speaking, and she explained to him that he needed to remove the sofa from the porch, interior furniture on the outside, which is not allowed by the town code. Um, and she told him that he could take it inside or he could take it to the curb, the town office free curb pickup uh, once a week. He may have not done the graffiti, someone else. That. Okay, all right. <laughs> I had no clue what else? you said. <laughs> No, you want to say uh, just else? thanks for your cooperation. 
Thank you. Gracias. Entonces tiene una semana para hacerlo. Ok, ya lo voy a sacar esa semana. Esa carpeta igual la voy a sacar para afuera. And he's going to remove the carpet too. Ok, good. Uh, Gracias. Sí. Now, now, some of these people came from some incredibly uh, wretched living conditions, mm -hmm. and you know you don't you don't know the customs and stuff. We think that I mean this is a good big big help for the town and for team, but more important than that is um, help for the Hispanic community. So. Some people said, well, the Hispanics don't clean their yards and everything, but maybe it's because they don't understand the language. Because after we went last year talking to, I don't know, 10 places, 20 places, yeah. everybody cleaned their houses. I've been here almost eight years. Uh, it's not nearly as bad as it was when I first came here. Uh, so it's helped everybody. And hopefully he's going to speak Spanish next year. <laughs> I know about a hundred Spanish words, something yeah. like that. Maybe two, maybe two hundred now. I've been working on it. Um, I just want to get a quesadilla, um, pollo. Green chicken. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like the regular, or you like the one? Uh, the regular. Small mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Chicken. With arroz. With arroz. Yeah. Um, my name is Calvin Dark. I'm 29. I was born and raised here in Siler City. I now live in Washington D.C. So you know I've lived and studied abroad a lot, but I always kind of kept the connection. I think because my family is here, um, all of my family, my mother's side and father's side. We're at probably one of my favorite restaurants in Siler City, um, San Felipe Mexican restaurant. In 2000, when I studied in Argentina, when I got back here, I you know, wanted to just practice Spanish and everything. So the first thing I did was I told my parents I wanted to eat Mexican food. They were not that excited about it at first because they never had Mexican food, they didn't know what it was. And um, my parents loved the food, you know. Um, that was a few years ago. Um, for coming to the Mexican restaurant to get fajitas or quesadillas, it's not something, you know, exotic anymore. That's why I think, you know, this restaurant and several others have done a lot to kind of like just open up the culture, to let people in Siler City know, you know, People eat just like we do here, you know. Uh, uh, yeah. Gracias. Black people felt that we had a place here. I mean, some parts of it were good, some parts of it were not good. My mother never went to, you know, an integrated high school, but it was a definite place. Um, I've never felt anywhere, anything but at home here. At the same time, um, having a new group come in, it was just, it was very tense, you know, very, very tense. My name is Susan Alston, and I'm a native of Silas City. I've been here lifelong, and I'm Calvin Dark's aunt. My family history with First Baptist Church go back for, I guess, 70, 80 years, with my uh, grandmother being rooted there. In fact, uh, the first minister there was our great uncle, Uncle Doc Siler, and uh, we have all just been there all our lives, just as a hand-me-down family. You're a Baptist, you go to First Baptist. I'm Calvin Dark, and we're here on the dark side because <laughs> we have my um, Aunt Susie's house here, and then just over there is um, my grandmother's house. Then my Aunt Pookie's house is there. Uh, next door to hers is my Aunt Betty's house. This Aunt Susie you probably already met. This is my Aunt Pookie. I'm Zilphia Dark. Zilphia, Z-Y-L-P-H-I-A. They call me Pookie. I'm 63 and be 64 June the 4th. I retired from the government as an inspector in the plants last year. So I work with the Latinos. But they are hardworking people, and I understand the reason why they are coming, because no work in, 
if they were poor, like I was growing up, I can understand trying to feed your family. You about do anything. The work is really hard work in the poetry plant. And I think they treat them, well, to me, the Latinos are really taking place of the blacks, what we used to go through. But I'm a believer God made us and love us all. And I try to treat people the way I want to be treated. Because you can find them, they'll do anything trying to make a living, you know, help you, help you out and do anything, where some people just on the back burner now, they won't, you know, think they're too good to work in the plants. I have a different point of view than my sister, which I love dearly, but we think differently. I mean, we look at the Hispanics as coming in because of their uh, lack of necessities from Mexico. But then I ask myself, could we in turn do the same if we were to want to move to Mexico just by flood? And also, I have to reflect upon the Haitians that they left out in the sea to drown. Do America want to answer why did we accept one race and just totally send one back? Was it by color? And yes, I believe that all of us are human. But to see the same things, the rights that I never had in high school, to just be able to go into a store without feeling the oppression of I'm taking something or I'm being watched, and, and, and that's just the way I feel. I, I don't hate the Hispanics. I just think they stepped into a place that we still haven't arrived at 2008. For white folks, you know, it's kind of like a no-win situation for them. This is Paul Quadras again, the uh, soccer coach at Jordan Matthews High School. If they've learned anything from the civil rights movement, from the history with African Americans, and them applying those things that they've learned to this new group of Latinos then it feels like to African-Americans that they're being stepped over, that, you know, you didn't treat us that way, and now you're treating them that way. Why? So what are whites and Latinos supposed to do? Recreate this history all over again of oppression and misunderstanding? Or really learn from the history that's happened of race relations in the U.S. and the South? In 2006, we had the marches that happened all across the U.S. where immigrants decided that they needed to express their opposition to what was happening in Congress at the time. That was the same march that happened in Siler City as well. This is Ilana Dubester. It wasn't an angry event. It was really about, you know, immigration reform and solidarity. And a lot of people spoke, a lot of African-American leaders spoke, and a lot of people walked up to the mic and asked to speak. And, um, and so we filled up this whole block and the entire church parking lot with people and on top of town hall as well. I am Barry Hayes. This was a much larger turnout. Uh, the, the David Duke March maybe had 200 people there. This one had uh, over 1,000 people, maybe 1,500 people. We figured it would probably be in total about you know, five, six, 7,000 people. I think the town just felt like that this was the wrong way to, to go about getting something. If you wanted to ask for something or gain the favor of the community, that they were just going about it in, in totally the wrong way. Tough shit. I mean, that's what it was about. It's okay if we're invisible. It's okay if we're silent. It's okay if we hide in our houses. It's okay if we break our backs and twist our hands cutting a freaking chicken. But for us to stand in front of your town hall demanding better services, demanding a better life and a better future, that's too much. You brown people stepped out of your place. Yeah. We want a new place. Look how many of us are here. We have power in this town, right? We don't actually have power in terms of representation or anything we don't have, right? But, but look, at, look at what's happening and look at what we can do. When I talk about those five stages, you know, this is really dealing with the loss of the culture. The, you know, the culture is changing. And that's what makes this issue so volatile. 
the last stage, of course, is acceptance. And uh, I don't necessarily think that Siler City is totally there, um, but it's certainly not as angry as it used to be. Well, my name is Virginia Tovar. I'm the interpreter here at the high school, which my friends call me Vicky, and you find some students calling me Vicky too. And I do a little bit of everything, not just interpreting, but um, slash secretary, slash nurse, slash counselor, slash look. <laughs> okay, I'm Jenny Pleasants, and um, I have a daughter that's a senior, and Ms. Tobar's been at Jordan Matthews um, for the last four years, and she's, she's just one that kind of knows... Everybody, 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 no matter who they are, what grade they're in, where they go, you know, church, whatever. And she can speak Spanish in one second and then turn around and speak English to me when I walk in the door. I don't know a thing she said five minutes before, but it's like, whatever, it works. She really is a gem to Jordan Matthews. Oh, well, she really you. is. Thank you. She is a gem. We're very lucky. Well, thanks. Um, as far as a coach, I mean, awesome coach, too. Coach Cuadros, um... He's, he, I think he's been just a positive impact on this school, too, because, I mean, we just started our soccer team. Um, it's been just a few years, which we didn't have a soccer team as far as the boys and the girls. You know, a small town's identity is usually wrapped up with its high school, its schools. The most visible part of that school is on its athletic fields. Now, Silo City is a real football town, uh, a very traditional sports town. There was a lot of resistance to uh, the soccer program at the high school uh, initially. Late 90s, early uh, turn of the century, I had never really brought it up as being an outlet for Hispanic students. It was always to be a program open to anyone who's, you know, who could play. But it was quickly seen as something for the Latino students at the school. Paul had a hard time getting uh, really the, the access to the fields and the, he came to our rotary and some more people got involved and they decided to go ahead and start a soccer team and let the field be used. John Pleasance from Siler City. I grew up here and I've traveled around but I, I'm back here raising my kids. I love this town and I, I love the area. Of course now you've got a great involvement. They won the state championships with the boys and the girls team. Uh, as you can see, it's got great camaraderie out there. They don't really care where, where their background is. They're, they're all great kids that enjoy each other. My daughter just scored. <laughs> what the uh, Jets did, uh, it, was, uh, it was real big. It got the long-term residents to look at these kids as one of their own. These kids were not just Latino kids, they were Jets. Soy Francisco, eh, aquí estoy con, con mis hijas Helen y Madeline. I'm Francisco. I'm here watching the game with my two daughters, Helen and Madeline, and all the other fans that are here watching. It's beautiful. We're here supporting our girls. I think it's good to have different people in the team, especially uh, white girls, because you get to know them better and you realize that it's not how others said that sometimes they're being racist, but like the girls in my soccer team, they like uh, invite us to their house and, ha and have like food and play out there, and that's cool. I think it's great to have friends that they're from different countries, because you learn from them, and they learn from you. Yeah, when people talk about, oh, this is, you know, this immigration question, it's not about immigration. It's about demographic change. You can deport all 12 million undocumented immigrants, you know. I don't know how many of them are Hispanic. The majority might be. But the demographic change is still going to happen. It's all about when the country becomes majority-minority. It becomes all mixed up. And that loss of power, numbers, whatever, that frightens a lot of people.
but change is inevitable. It's, uh, it's one of the physical laws of the universe. Nothing stays the same. Everything changes. And um, that's a good thing. In the summer of 2008, one of Siler City's two major chicken processing plants, Pilgrim's Pride, closed. It cost the town more than 800 jobs. Some of the Latinos who'd held those jobs left, but there was no mass exodus. Many Latinos have family members working in other local industries. They say they've put down roots in Siler City and hope to stay. You're listening to Pueblo USA, an American Radio Works documentary from American Public Media. I'm Stephen Smith. Coming up, Chief Economics Correspondent Chris Farrell on immigration and money. This rundown street has turned into a thriving neighborhood, and it's all because of immigrants. To see photos of Siler City, North Carolina, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can download this and other American Radio Works programs by signing up for our podcast, That's all at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Pueblo USA is part of our project, The Real Face of Poverty, sustained coverage of poverty and opportunity in the United States. Support for the series comes from the Northwest Area Foundation. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Stay with us. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. You're listening to Pueblo USA, an American Radio Works documentary from American Public Media. I'm Stephen Smith. We're spending the hour hearing how immigration is changing American society, not in the predictable places like Los Angeles or New York, but in towns like Siler City, North Carolina, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. I have a torta and uh, an orange soda. This sprawling indoor market on Lake Street in Minneapolis is a sign of how much things have changed. Lake Street used to be full of peep shows and liquor stores, boarded-up shops. Now the place is alive with Latino businesses, like this noisy food court and marketplace. This is a great example of how immigrants can give a boost to a community. That's economics correspondent Chris Farrell, who has spent a lot of time on Lake Street. Chris, you and I have lived here in the Twin Cities for many years. Why particularly focus on this neighborhood? Lake Street's transformation is a good illustration of why many economists believe immigrants are good for the economy. We hear a lot of negative stories about immigrants, rising crime, unemployment. But I think there's a much more positive story to tell, even though many of the immigrants we met live on the edge. You see a lot of car repair shops on Lake Street, and Chris Farrell has been visiting one of them for months. A guy named Alfredo runs the place. Alfredo got hired 11 years ago to fix flats and change the oil, but soon he may own the garage. Well, I'm, uh, I'm uh, the uh, store manager, but I, you know, I'm, I'm buying the business, just the business, not the property. Alfredo is an illegal immigrant from Mexico. He's got phony work papers. But it didn't take long for him to get promoted to assistant manager. Alfredo was good with customers and hungry to learn English. So I started watching movies, a lot of movies, uh, listening to, uh, uh, you know, the radio. Let's say I don't, I don't know the word, I don't know what the word means. And I always ask, how do you say this in present, past, and future? Yeah. You know, that's how I learned it. So. Your English is good. <laughs> Thank you. Good. Alfredo came to Minneapolis with his girlfriend, Norma. Now they have two children. They're all down at the garage one Saturday afternoon, after closing time, with a half dozen employees. In an empty repair bay, Alfredo is cooking pork ribs on a gas grill. We put, uh, we put lime, uh, salt, and we put the beer on top of it. That's the secret. And you don't, you, you don't take squigs while you're... 
Well, that's kind of like, you know, you... <laughs> we did that too. <laughs> After, you know... At Alfredo's garage, no one talks about legal status. Because here, it doesn't matter. They present papers, that's all that matters. You know, they had to, to you know, show us they are legal. Maybe they're not, but it's not my job to find out if they are or not. Yes. You know, there's a lot of people, they make documents, and we, need, we buy them, and... I mean, that's the only way you can work. I mean, it's not legal, but what can you do? So, Chris Farrell, Alfredo's garage seems to me like a great example of why some Americans fear they're losing their jobs to immigrants. I mean, aren't Alfredo and his workers taking jobs that Americans could have? They're probably taking some, but overall, I don't think so. I need an analogy to explain this. Let's go buy a pie. A pie. Humor me. This is Guayaquil, which is a restaurant on Lake Street in Minneapolis, and this place offers postres, which means dessert. Can I help you? I'd like a pie. Uh, We don't have any, but we have flan and piña colada cake. I'll have flan. All right. So here's the flan. It is not a pie. It's a kind of egg custard. Right, but at least it's round. So, to my analogy, if I cut myself a big piece, there's less flan for you, right? Well, this is how a lot of people think about the job market. There are only so many jobs. If Latino immigrants take a big slice, there's less for American citizens. There's only so much flan, but cheap Mexican labor is taking away jobs and driving down wages. Not exactly. The flan metaphor or the pie metaphor is wrong. The economy is not a flan, where the more you take, the less I get. Now, immigrants do affect wages, especially at the unskilled end of the market. But the impact is relatively minor, and there are other important considerations, such as... Well, the language barrier, for example. Since many Latinos aren't fluent in English, they don't compete for the same jobs as native-born Americans. You don't necessarily need English to be a janitor or a housekeeper. So, to strain your metaphor, we're not eating the same flan. I'm eating a flan you don't want anyway. Right. Also, some businesses take advantage of immigrant labor to expand, and that investment creates new jobs. And last, the Hispanic workers and entrepreneurs on Lake Street They're also consumers, and all that shopping creates demand for everything from cleaning crews to store cashiers. Well, in fact, we see that at the grocery store on Lake Street, where Alfredo's family shops every week. You found it? You did. Okay. This one, cotija cheese, you can use for everything you want. Uh Even this one. Oaxaca, Uh this product is good. Alfredo and his family are loyal customers here at Cub Foods. It's the first major grocery store along Lake Street to stock its aisles with Mexican products. How are you guys doing? I'm good, thank you. When you're in the neighborhood, you got to do business right with the neighborhood. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We used to live on uh, Minnehaha and 35th, so we've been shopping here for third, almost, you know, almost 11 years. Oh, really? Yeah. Good experiences, I hope. Alfredo and Norma load their groceries into a minivan, the kind with leather seats and two drop-down DVD players. They've prospered in Minneapolis. Alfredo's done so well at the garage that Norma doesn't have to work. She stays home with their two children, and she learns English from them. I have my private teacher, Alfred. (laughs) He teaches me a lot. And yeah, I charge it. And Arali, Arali is, uh, she's the Spanish teacher. No, she isn't. Yes, I am. She's just a girl. Three years ago, the family paid $100,000 for a house in a rundown neighborhood close to Lake Street. They planted a neat lawn, they put up a white picket fence, and inside, the house is completely redone. Okay, well, she's, you know, finished cooking. Let's go downstairs. This is my, uh, our, our jacuzzi. We got jacuzzi here, you know. All those right here are my ideas. The way it is, all came right out of my mind. I didn't need any architect or something. You kind of picture what I want. I say, I want that thing up there. I want a jacuzzi here, and I want all that tile right behind. And uh, they say, well, you pay the way you want it. 
So Alfredo's put a lot of money into his place. That's money that supports local business and stores. Immigrants like Alfredo are consumers, workers, entrepreneurs, and in all those roles, they provide more jobs and opportunities. So, Chris Farrell, they help the economy grow, but don't they also cost something? I mean, taxpayers end up supporting them, right? Immigrants are taxpayers, too. Even illegal immigrants, many of them file income taxes. And if they're on a payroll, they're paying into Medicare and Social Security, even though they'll never collect benefits. What else? State sales taxes, property taxes, too. Yeah, but don't they take out more than they put in? It's a complicated equation. In the short run, in terms of education, health care, other public services, they use more services than they pay taxes for. But over a longer period of time, probably not. But I would assume that, say, for example, it costs more to educate the kids of immigrants in public schools. No question. And poor Hispanic students are behind on test scores. The dropout rate, it's way too high. But the really important point is how much better are U.S.-born children of immigrants doing compared to their parents? There are more high school graduates, there are more college graduates, and in the long run, they become contributors to the economy. Actually, I think we can see what you're talking about with Alfredo's kids. They were born here. They're doing really well. His seventh grader just won a National Leadership Award. And if the family can raise the money, he'll head to Washington, D.C., and meet President Bush. Yeah, but that was the plan before the Minneapolis police raided Alfredo's garage. It used to be the place where I storage my files. They took it all. That I was telling you. The police also the broke down the door of Alfredo's home. Norma was hiding in a basement closet. You know, she closed this door right here and she was in here. And they came with the gun like this and... You know, she was scared to death. She was hiding here. Yeah. A criminal investigation is underway, but no one's been arrested yet. The search warrants say Alfredo may be guilty of identity theft. They didn't come and look for me. They came and looked for information. Following the raid, Alfredo spends days in his van, driving to law offices, weighing his options. He's been using someone else's social security number. He bought it years ago, back in California, when he and Norma first crossed the border illegally from Mexico. And a guy, one guy approached me and said, you need papers? And I said, sure, how much? You know, $50 for the Social Security card and $100 for the, uh, uh, the green card. So we bought both because we need something to, you know, to start working. We don't know who Social Security, you know, I mean, numbers belong to. Oh, I'm going to the bank to try to uh, see if I can re- refinance my house. Oh. Orhan, how you doing? I'm doing good. What can I do for you, sir? Alfredo stays cheerful for his customers, but really, he's worried about safeguarding his property and his reputation. It's really bad because one day I was the happiest guy in the world. Now I'm... I'm one of the, you know, really sad person because they made me feel like I'm a criminal when I'm not. Chris Farrell, Alfredo was able to hire both a criminal defense lawyer and an immigration attorney, but most illegal immigrants can't afford to do that. And he may still get deported, even though he's built a successful business in the United States, has a solid family life. He might even face criminal penalties. Well, he did break the law. He used a social security number that belongs to someone else. A lot of illegal immigrants are in the same position, though, Chris. They use false social security numbers to get work. And that makes them vulnerable. It makes it easier for employers to exploit them, and they're afraid to complain because then the authorities might notice them and they'll get deported. Alfredo isn't afraid. He said he wants his story told, even if he and his family aren't sure what will happen to them. The last time we see Alfredo, he's playing volleyball here in a Minneapolis park with family and friends. Pork ribs and corn are stacked beside the grill. Teenage boys are flaunting their moves with a soccer ball. Women cluster around the little kids. Alfredo's first grader and her cousin sing a song they learned in school. If Alfredo is deported, he'll leave this community behind. His daughter, Adelie, and son, Alfred, will leave the only country they've ever known. 
And how's it affecting Alfred? He's, he's really upset. He said, I wish I can be the president. I said, well, you can be a president. You're an, Ameri you're an American citizen. He said, I will do some changes because he feels like the way they came to my house and broke the door, broke into it. He said, that's not appropriate. We, we explained to him that, you know, that's their job and that's what they had to do. But even though Alfred, the son, was born in the United States and is a citizen, he may be moving to Mexico. If his father, Alfredo, gets deported, the rest of the family will go back too. When this happened to me, that kind of broke my heart. Seriously. I mean, once again, I mean, I can, I can be in my house crying and, and say, oh, why, why me, why me, you know, why this happened to me? Or I can be out and, and, and show that I can do better. I mean, I love this country. That's why I want to stay here. Many illegal workers and their families aren't staying, however. They're going back because of the government crackdown. The raids seem to be working. Arrests at the border are down and deportations are up. It's not just stronger law enforcement. The influx of Latinos ebbs and flows with the economy. When the economy is strong and employers are holding up help-wanted signs, illegal and legal immigrants come here. But when the economy contracts and employers are handing out pink slips, unauthorized workers leave. Or they don't come here in the first place. That's right. But the economy will recover and migrants will return legally and illegally. Over the long haul, the evidence will come out the same. Immigrants, legal or not, benefit the nation's economy far more than they cost it. Even if immigration is good for the economy, it's controversial. Many Americans remain deeply uneasy about the new people moving into town, especially if those new people arrived here illegally. What to do about immigration remains one of the great divides this political season. But no matter what the politicians do, it's clear that this new wave of immigration is changing the United States. No group will have a bigger impact than Latinos. By the year 2050, Latinos will be nearly a third of the population, putting down roots in Pueblo, USA. Pueblo, USA was produced by John Bewin and Tennessee Watson of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and by Laurie Stern and Chris Farrell of American Radio Works. It was edited by Catherine Winter. We had help from Ellen Gettler, Ocean Kalin, Nancy Rosenbaum, Suzanne Pico, Ariel Kitsch, and Sam Keenan. I'm Stephen Smith. To find out how immigrants become citizens, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can also listen to this program again, as well as hear our entire catalog of nearly 100 documentaries. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Pueblo USA is part of The Real Face of Poverty, sustained coverage of poverty and opportunity in the United States. Support for the series comes from the Northwest Area Foundation. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. American Public Media. <laughs>